Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Um, before we get started today, this is our first um, Grand Rounds presentation in this auditorium since it's been upgraded. Those of you who are here for M&M on Wednesday know we had a little audio glitch at the very beginning <laughs> or towards the beginning. Um, and I'm not 100% sure how to prevent that today, but I am going to start by asking the folks who are watching remotely um, at whatever site you're watching to be sure that your outgoing mic is turned off before we start. Um, we're going to see if that helps prevent any problems. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it yet or for any reason can't see it, our uh, CME code today is MHKC, MHKC. And we'll leave it up there for just a sec while I um, introduce our speaker for today, which is a great pleasure. Um, she's one of our own faculty. Dr. Mary McGowan is an assistant professor of medicine and co-director of the Lipid Clinic in the section of cardiology. She earned her medical degree from the University of Massachusetts and continued there for her internship and residency in internal medicine before completing a fellowship in the Division of Pediatrics at Johns Hopkins Hospital and the Johns Hopkins Lipid Research Clinic. Over the ensuing years before joining us at Dartmouth, she served as the medical director for several organizations, including the New England Heart Institute, Cholesterol Management Center, the Community Health Improvement Program at Catholic Medical Center in Manchester, and the Cholesterol Treatment Center at Concord Hospital. More recently, she held research leadership positions at Genzyme Corporation and at Asperian Therapeutics. Dr. McGowan was the principal investigator on over 30 national and international clinical trials. Her research has primarily focused on the treatment of severe hyperlipidemia and on lipid-lowering therapy and cardiovascular disease. She has lectured nationally and internationally on lipid metabolism, diet, exercise, and obesity, and she's the author of numerous articles and 15, uh, sorry, five books. Sorry, a little extra credit there. <laughs> Dr. McGowan serves on the alumni board at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, the Scientific Advisory Board of the Familial Hypercholesterolemia Foundation, and the National Lipid Association Foundation Board. She has previously served on the National Lipid Association Board of Directors and the New Hampshire affiliate of the American Heart Association Board. And she was the first chief medical officer of the Familial Hypercholesterolemia Foundation. She's passionate about helping people make better decisions about their health and about generating and disseminating knowledge that enables doctors to work with their patients to reduce cardiovascular risk. Thank you, Dr. McGowan, for sharing your considerable wisdom with us today. Thanks very much, Kelly. And <clears throat> I have to apologize. I haven't had a cold in three years, but of course, I have a cold now. Let's see if I can this. Uh, just need to know how I switch it to the. Seems so easy when they were teaching me. Mm -hmm. Just need to get to. Let's see. Again, new room, <laughs> new equipment. I, I think if you. There. Yeah. Okay. And the, oh, yes. Okay. Great. There we go. Um, so about, let's say, um, three or four months ago, I gave Graham rounds for cardiology and it was very heavy on clinical trials. So I decided today what I was going to do is um, really be heavy on clinical patients and um, talk about two cases. Let's see if I can. This one. 
There we go. Um, so I'd like to talk about familial hypercholesterolemia, but I'd like to anchor this with two cases. Um, we'll talk about the genetic causes of FH, the frequency, the transmission, the cardiovascular risk if left untreated, recommended screening. We'll look at the current frequency of screening here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock just to give us some sense of where we are at. The benefits of early treatment, lipid-altering therapies in FH, and again, explored through these two cases. We'll talk about medications on the horizon, and if we have time, talk about the Find FH initiative. So um, as you see your objectives, one of the things I said I was going to speak about was, was diet. Um, I had to remove that from my talk because um, I timed it and it, it didn't fit in. Um, but suffice it to say that our patients with FH um, generally do not get a, a tremendous response from diet. But that doesn't mean that patients with FH shouldn't be on a low-fat, um, good, um, good diet. And in general, uh, patients uh, with FH, along with the rest of the people in the United States, have gained weight. Um, so they do benefit from weight loss diets when necessary. And any diet other than the ketogenic diet is worthwhile, any good, healthy diet. The ketogenic diet, as um, some of my uh, colleagues from endocrinology, um, both um, Emily and um, Julia, who've been in clinic with me, um, have seen that you can see as much as 100 milligram per deciliter increase in LDL with the ketogenic diet. So it's, it's a diet that can get you to look like you have FH. So um, that said, um, we'll move on to talk. So I'd like to start by talking about a case. Jane B., she's told me that I can use her name, and in fact, you'll see her picture shortly. So in 1987, Jane was a 39-year-old woman, no past medical history, non-smoker, body mass index of around 25, no hypertension, no diabetes, two normal vaginal deliveries. So she developed chest pressure um, and shortness of breath while raking. Her response was to go inside and sit down to let it pass. Then she started noting left arm pain and shortness of breath when climbing the stairs. Driving to work one day, she developed severe heartburn, nausea, tightness in her chest. She got to work and her colleagues told her she looked gray. So she called her husband, brought her to the ER. She was diagnosed with a myocardial infarction, had a catheterization that revealed multi-vessel disease, underwent a bypass times four, so what do you want to know? A pre-morbid cholesterol. Very good, because the title of this talk. <laughs> so in, in the ER, um, you want to get your lipid profile um, from somebody who has a cardiovascular event within um, 24 hours. Otherwise, it does go down. But total cholesterol, 420. LDL cholesterol, 350. Rest of her number is normal. Um, what else do you want to know? You're the guy that seems to <laughs> And what else do you want to know? How about her family history? Um, so Jane was 19 when her mother died of an MI at 43. Her maternal grandmother died at 39, also of an MI. Yet Jane never considered herself at risk, even as she was driving to the ER. So what's the diagnosis? Now, this has to be pretty obvious. Okay. That's right, familial hypercholesterolemia. So what, what is FH? FH is an autosomal dominant genetic disorder caused by a pathogenic mutation in one of the following genes. The LDL receptor gene, um, this accounts for 90 to 95% of FH. 
the apolipoprotein B gene, this accounts for 5 to 10%, and a gain-of-function mutation in PCSK9, which accounts for about 1% of um, FH. And then, naturally, an autosomal dominant disorder, but has the same phenotype. The LDL receptor adapter protein 1 is an autosomal recessive disorder. It's vanishingly rare, but it does occur. So this is just a little schematic of uh, what can go wrong. Um, so here's your LDL receptor. Let's see if I can actually the pointers. I know it works, but oh, there it is. It's and, very picky about okay. the angle. So it, here's the LDL receptor. And so you can have all sorts of defects in the LDL receptor. And in fact, up to 1,600 different mutations have been described in the LDL receptor gene to make it not work. Um, the ApoB. ApoB is the apolipoprotein associated with LDL. So this yellow um, lipoprotein is LDL, and the little ribbon around it is ApoB, and that can be defective. ApoB is the ligand that binds to the LDL receptor. So if that's, in, if that's got a, a genetic defect, um, it doesn't bind properly. Then we have PCSK9, and PCSK9 is depicted here. It's this little protein. It's a serine protease um, that... Uh, it binds to the LDL receptor. We don't know why it is made, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, but um, PCSK9 can bind to the LDL receptor and drag the LDL receptor along with LDL to its death in the lysosome, destroys it. And as a result, you have fewer LDL receptors. So people with gain-of-function mutations um, will have fewer LDL receptors and an increased LDL cholesterol. And then finally, the LDL receptor, um, the LDL receptor adapter protein mediates the positioning of the LDL receptor. So, LDL or familial hypercholesterolemia occurs in one in 220 to one in 250 people worldwide. Affects everybody, um, but it's higher in certain founder populations, and we have one right here in New Hampshire. Franco-Americans in northern New England um, are at much higher risk. In certain parts of Quebec, one in 81 individuals have FH. Um, it's probably a little bit um, closer to one in 150 um, here in New, New Hampshire. Half of a person's first-degree relatives will also have FH. So that makes it very important to think about screening family members. And people with FH universally require medications to lower their cardiac risk. <clears throat> Just a little um, depiction of what we have here in New Hampshire. Um, somewhere around 25% of us in New Hampshire um, are Franco-Americans, myself included. Um, so uh, Carroll County, 19%, um, and uh, Coas County, 14, 40%. So somewhere around 25% of people in New Hampshire have Franco-American roots. Oops. Okay, so when should you suspect FH? You should suspect FH in an adult with an LDL greater than 190, children with LDLs greater than 160. Now, not all people at an LDL greater than 190 have FH, um, but you're certainly moving into the arena where they will. 90% of affected individuals will experience an atherosclerotic vascular event if left untreated, secondary to prolonged exposure to LDL cholesterol. So LDL is the disease. So there's some um, manifestations that we've all learned about in medical school. Corneal arcus, especially if you see it under the age of 45. 
extensor tendon xanthomas. These feel like firm um, tendon bumps and xanthelasmas. The problem with this is we, we have these criteria for um, diagnosing FH. We use a, a criteria called the Simon Broom criteria, another one called the Dutch Lipid Network criteria. These all require um, physical findings and you get a various number of points and then voila, you have diagnosed FH. Unfortunately, um, well, I guess it's fortunate that more people are being treated these days for their high cholesterol. Unfortunately, they're not being told they have FH, and that really misses a big opportunity to screen family members. But one of the things that we know is that what we learned in the past is not true presently. When I was doing my fellowship, um, the dogma, 30% of people in their 30s will have these physical findings, 40% in their 40s, 50% in their 50s. It's just not true anymore um, because people are treated a little bit earlier. They're found to have high cholesterol, and so they don't develop these physical findings. And so some of the diagnostic criteria we use um, are not as worthwhile as they were in the past. Still, it's good that we're treating people. Um, these um, are uh, Achilles tendon xanthomas. <clears throat> Three times in my career, I have received a referral um, from an orthopedic surgeon who was asked to take care of a person who had a ruptured Achilles tendon. So, that it, And then they think to get a lipid profile. These are obviously, I took a slide of it because they're so profound, um, make it hard to buy shoes, uh, but really it's usually just a thickening, a widening of the Achilles tendon. And you have to be um, sort of very, uh, you know, astute to think of it. These are very, very obvious. But what happens is cholesterol replaces the Achilles tendon and it becomes very, very weak and prone to rupture. This is just another picture of xanthelasmus. So we need medications to treat our patients. Of course, we want them to be on a, a good low-fat diet. And so what I've on here are all the statins, um, but the current National Cholesterol Education Program, or the, actually AHA ACC guidelines, and the current National Lipid Association guidelines call for high-dose, high-intensity statins in patients with FH. So that means 40 or 80 of a torvastatin, 20 or 40 of rosuvastatin. That does not mean that if you can't get somebody to tolerate 40 or 80 of a torvastatin, 20 or 40 of rosuvastatin, that you shouldn't use anything. Any dose will be beneficial, um, but trying to get those high dose, high intensity statins is important. Um, so statins work, as everybody here knows, by inhibiting the HMG-CoA reductase enzyme um, in the cholesterol uh, pathway. You block that, you decrease cholesterol production in the cell, and you upregulate up LDL receptors on the surface of the liver and other cells. Zetia, azetamide, um, works by blocking the anemone pit C1-like 1 sterol receptor. So it inhibits the absorption of both plant and animal sterols. So it actually, azetamibe is what we use in beta-cytosterolemia, um, who, people who get atherosclerosis because they hyperabsorb plant sterols. Um, but azetamibe also blocks the absorption of cholesterol, and that in turn reduces the delivery of cholesterol to the liver and upregulates the LDL receptor as well. And when you add azetamibe to statins, you generally get about another 20% reduction in LDL.
What about the PCSK9 inhibitors? The PCSK9 inhibitors came on the market in 2015. Um, Alirocamab or Praluent, 75 milligrams um, or 150 milligrams subcutaneously every two, two weeks. Evolocumab or Repatha, it's 140 milligrams every two weeks or 420 milligrams every month. So I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about how they work, how the um, PCSK9 inhibitors work, because it, it's one drug that maybe we're not as familiar with as others. But just to bring you back to the LDL receptor. So the LDL receptor is made in the endoplasmic reticulum. It goes up to the surface of the hepatocyte or any cell, and there it interacts with LDL. In this case, LDL is depicted as blue ball, and the APOB is a yellow, a little yellow ribbon. Um, this becomes endocytosed into a clathrin-coated vesicle. The bond between LDL receptor and LDL is pretty weak, and so the LDL receptor goes back up to the surface of the hepatocyte cell to bring in more cholesterol. An LDL receptor makes this trip somewhere between 100 and 150 times in its lifetime and then it, it is senescent. And then the LDL gets dropped off at the lysosome for destruction. What about PCSK9? So PCSK9, as I've said before, is a serine protease. It's made in the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, it goes out into the bloodstream where it binds to the LDL um, LDL receptor complex, and unfortunately, the bond becomes very strong, and this is dropped off in total to the lysosome for destruction. So people who have gain-of-function mutations for PCSK9 have very few LDL receptors, very elevated LDL cholesterol. Now, I, I have wondered why we have PCSK9. There must be some evolutionary reason that we have it. So I was um, at last year at the uh, FH Summit, and Brown and Goldstein, the um, physicians who uh, earned the Nobel Prize for discovering the LDL receptor, happened to be the um, keynote speakers. And Dan Rader um, from UPenn was the moderator. And so the first question Dan asked um, doctors Brown and Goldstein was, uh, why do we have PCSK9? So they looked at each other and they shrugged. Um, they have no idea. So you don't have to feel bad if you don't have any idea either. So um, we actually have um, patients who have loss of function mutations. Um, one of the first year I was here, I was referred a woman who works in this hospital who has an LDL of 11. And she was referred um, because there was a question like, how can she have an LDL of 11? She had three normal vaginal deliveries. She was in great shape. Um, and the question was, what, what was going on? So I sent her blood to um, Cohen and Hobbs at UT Southwest. Western. Turns out she had two mutations um, for um, PCSK9, loss of function mutations. And um, one was the African-American mutation, and one was the Caucasian mutation. And this woman looked Caucasian to me, and I asked her, you know, is anyone in your family African-American? She said, yes, you know, my mother is African-American and American Indian. So that's where she got that mutation. We checked both parents. They each had their right mutation, and we checked all three of her kids. All three of her kids had LDLs in around the 80 range. Um, parents had LDLs in around the 90 range. So um, it's good to have a gain of a loss of function mutation, not good to have a gain of function.
Um, so enter the monoclonal antibodies. So the monoclonal antibodies tie up PCSK9 and um, as a result, increase LDL receptors, even in people without gain-of-function mutations. If you add a PCSK9 inhibitor to um, somebody who's on a statin, you'll lower their LDL by about 60%. So back to Jane. Jane was prescribed lobostatin. So, it, it, and just to take a step back, um, does anybody remember when the first um, National Cholesterol Education Program ATP um, guidelines were published? Here? <laughs> 70s, early 80s. No, 1988. So, you know, Jane, it, Jane's primary care doctor, who was a very good primary care doctor, could be um, forgiven for not having checked her cholesterol. So 1988, um, the panel began in 1985. And luckily, Jane had her cardiovascular event in 1987, the year that um, lovastatin came on the market. So she was pers prescribed lovastatin, then simvastatin, then atorvastatin, then rosuvastatin. And unfortunately, over time, she developed severe proximal muscle aches on high doses of statins. She had proximal muscle aches and weakness, and she would feel better off the statin, worse on, finally able to tolerate 10 milligrams of rosuvastatin. Now, 10 milligrams of rosuvastatin is a good dose. It can lower the LDL by about 44%. When azetamide came on the market in 2002, that also got added. But this was the best she could do. Um, her total cholesterol was 235, LDL 158, certainly a whole lot better than 350, but still not great. And she had subsequent cardiac events. She had an MI in 2005, two strokes in 2007, luckily no residual. Alirocumab was added in 2015, and her LDL is now 52. So why does the diagnosis of FH matter? H is a genetic disorder, which is your 50% of your first degree relatives are going to have it. Um, it has been uh, described as a tier one genetic disorder um, by the CDC Office of Healthcare Genomics. There are only three um, tier one conditions. Um, does that, FH is one of them. Does anyone want to guess what the other ones are? Pardon me? So the BRCA genes and Lynch syndrome. And why is that? FH has been recognized, as I said, as a tier one genetic disorder, meaning that there is sufficient evidence for health benefits related to diagnosis and treatment of FH, and as such, implementing case finding via family history, um, cascade screening, and other strategies such as universal screening of children um, is indicated. So what about cascade screening? Cascade screening involves either genetic testing or lipid screening of all first-degree relatives of an index case, and then repeating this with newly identified individuals. So cascade screening, whether it's using genetic testing or um, lipid testing, is cost-effective. And the reason it's cost-effective for genetic screening is when you find the, the mutation, you do not have to check all the mutations in LDL, all the mutations in APOB, all the mutations in PCSK9 for further testing. You test for only that one mutation that the index case has. So pediatric screening in the United States, what are the recommendations for that? They've been out since 2011. 
So the American Academy of Pediatrics and the, American, the National Heart Lung Blood, Blood Institute has recommended universal screening for all children ages 9 to 11. Universal screening. That means every kid. Um, you know, I know that my kids went to a really great pediatrician who, unless I asked her, wasn't going to screen my kids for their lipids. Um, so between 9 and 11, that's defined FH. And what can you do if you find a 9 to 11-year-old with FH, likely FH, you can screen their parents, and maybe their parents haven't yet had their cardiac event. And so maybe you can save a child's parent. Again, at 17 to 21. 17 to 21 is looking for the cases we missed um, between 9 and 11, or um, looking for obesity-related lipid abnormalities, primarily elevated triglycerides, depressed HDL. Um, so uh, one other mention of the 9 to 11. Why did they choose 9 to 11? The 9 to 11 was chosen because as kids go through puberty, and this is pretty universal, as kids go through puberty, there's a dip in LDL. It's a transient dip, but you don't want to call somebody not FH because they've had this transient dip. And then, more importantly, kids with a family member with FH or a family history of heart disease screen at age two. Nobody's doing that. So when I met Jane in 1995, she was referred to my clinic um, by her very good internist. Um, she was now 47. At this point, her daughters were 22 and 24 and had never been screened, and both of them have FH. So how are we doing at Dartmouth-Hitchcock with the guidelines, 9 to 11? I don't even want to show you the two-year-old guidelines. So we are screening with a full lipid profile anywhere from 2 to 5.5%, depending on what which division you're at. We do better 17 to 21. Um, here we're screening anywhere from 8 to 31%. Um, and some of this is that kids have moved into um, coverage with family practitioners and internists by the time they're 21. So we have a lot of work to do. And we are losing an opportunity. So this is a little bit of a, a difficult slide. It's not, not really that difficult, but it's a, a European slide. So it looks at cholesterol in millimoles. Um, and this is a mathematical modeling by um, Nordisgard and colleagues. And essentially what they do um, is look at millimoles of exposure to cholesterol by year. So if you don't have FH, you cross the... You cross the line um, at about 55. Now, some people cross the line earlier. Some people cross the line later to have a threshold for cardiovascular disease, depending on what a person's risk factor profile is. But in terms of millimole of exposure to um, LDL cholesterol, if you are a child or a young person with familial hypercholesterolemia and you're not diagnosed, um, you're not screened when you're 2 or 9 to 11, you cross the threshold at 35. But what can we do if we screen these kids at 9 to 11 and just start them on a low-dose statin? Just starting on a low-dose statin, 10 milligrams of atorvastatin, 5 milligrams of rosuvastatin, you can make them normal. You can change them to 53. That's when they cross the threshold. Um, if you wait, as we did with Jane's daughters, um, then you're starting a high-dose statin between the ages of 17 and 21. Um, you, you improve things. 
it's 48 where they cross the line. And this talk isn't about homozygous FH, but um, if you have homozygous FH, have inherited a gene um, for both from both parents, um, then you're universally dead at around the age of 18 if you have not been treated aggressively. So what can we do? I've been talking um, with Dr. Loud, um, with uh, Dr. Krieger, with, um, with Jeff. Um, I've been talking with um, uh, Mark Hoffley, who's the director of pediatric lipids, with Eric Schlesser. And we've come to a conclusion that we need to do something. And George Blake, quality improvement has been amazing. Um, so we're going to have an awareness campaign starting here. Um, um, Eric Schlesser has said that we can create a um, health maintenance module that sort of fires an EDH based on the age. So the kids get queued up to get a profile. But the most important thing I've learned from pediatricians is that they don't order labs the way we do. We all order labs. I mean, who goes to their primary care doctor without getting labs either before or after? But pediatricians don't draw labs. Kids don't like to get stuck. Parents don't like to bring their kids to the lab. Um, and we certainly don't need to have the kids fast. You can get a non-fasting lipid profile um, and tell if somebody has FH. So point of care screening um, in the office with a Cholestec machine, finger stick. Um, and then if we need to, we go on to a full lipid profile. Mark Hoffley and I have agreed to review all the labs and provide pediatricians with guidance. Pediatricians are not used to prescribing um, statins, and they feel a little bit uncomfortable with it. I think they'll get better, um, but they do feel a little bit uncomfortable. So FH impacts families. And so um, I, I'm part of the FH Foundation. Um, the FH Foundation was started by a young woman um, who was turned away from a major medical center um, with her cardiac event because she was young, blonde, and thin. And she didn't think that she could have a cardiac event, but yet she did and ultimately went on for stenting and was found to have FH. So she start, Catherine Wildman is her name. She started this organization, raising awareness and saving lives. And each year they educate a group of about 40 FH advocates. And these are some of my patients who are FH advocates, some from Vermont. So we lobbied um, Patrick Leahy, some from New Hampshire. So we lobbied Jean Shaheen to get more money for FH research. So um, little Amelia, um, people say, how could she have high cholesterol? Well, it's genetic, and her LDL was 260 um, before she was successfully treated with statins. This is Jane's daughter, who is um, eight years older than Jane was when she had her cardiac event, has not had a cardiac event. Um, Mike um, is a science teacher. His mother had very early cardiovascular disease, and he has not had any. Um, he is on evolocumab. Uh, Rizubastatin and uh, Azetamib has an LDL of about 29. Um, and then Tim. Tim um, is uh, a, an architect uh, who lives in Thetford, Vermont. Um, and when I showed this slide to Cardiac Graham Rounds, turns out he's the architect. Um, but Tim, um, his dad uh, had uh, cardiovascular disease um, in his 30s. His sister was living in Rhode Island. Um, she had shortness of breath, chest pain, went to an urgent care, um, 33 years old, not believed to be able to have cardiovascular disease. She was driving to CVS to pick up her bronchitis medications um, when she pulled over and died in a parking lot, 33 years old. So Tim has been a major advocate. Um, Lisa has been a major advocate. And Mike and Amelia, um, also big advocates. This is Jane. 
She's now 71. Four of her six grandchildren have FH. They are all treated with statins. So case number two is an even more difficult case. Um, this is a case of an FH patient who has true statin intolerance, true azetamibe intolerance, and is non-responsive to PCSK9 inhibitors, even when I injected her and checked for the labs. Um, so CI, and um, Teresa knows CI. Um, she is her, I, I guess I shouldn't give away um, what you do for, for, um, Teresa, for uh, CI. So CI is a 60-year-old woman. Um, she was referred to me in 2016 with intolerance to statins. I mean, she describes severe, severe um, proximal muscle pain um, that would get better when she would come off statins. She would not be able to get out of bed when she was on statins. Zedia caused severe muscle pain as well. Um, so felt like it caused mental fog. And she was on other medicines, so it wasn't like she was afraid to take medicines. And non-responsive um, to the PCSK9 inhibitor evolocumab. When that I received that referral, I was really um, you know, who doesn't respond to evolocumab? So CI has a strong family history. Her father and brother died in their 50s of MIs, multiple paternal aunts and uncles with cardiac disease. Paternal grandmother died at age 60. Just a, a note, um, women get about 10 years on men. So in families with FH, women get in trouble with cardiovascular events about 10 years later, probably because of estrogen. Um, so here are her baseline lipids. Oops, sorry. LDL of 260. Um, we haven't talked about LP little a, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. This is an atherogenic, thrombogenic, and inflammatory lipoprotein. And unfortunately, about a third to 50% of people with FH will also have um, elevations in their LP little a. And these people get into trouble with very, very early cardiac disease. We did do her genetics, and she has a pathogenic variant of ApoB. It turns out um, that that pathogenic variant may be the, the reason she doesn't respond um, to PCSK9 inhibitors. I have a colleague, Patrick Moriarty, who's at um, the University of Kansas, and he has a woman who is one of the FH advocates. She has the exact same um, ApoB variant, and she is a non-responder as well. So we're going to write this, these, um, this up as case studies. But uh, you can see um, no response to either alirocumab or evolocumab. So lipoprotein little a, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's, it's an LDL-like particle. Um, it looks like LDL right here. This time, LDL depicted with the ApoB, but then attached to ApoB by a disulfide bond is small a. And small a has um, homology with plasminogen. It competes with plasminogen for fibrin binding, inhibiting fibrinolysis. So atherogenic, thrombogenic, and recently by Sam Samikis found to be um, inflammatory as well. <clears throat> so CI, excellent low-fat diet, exercise four to five days a week, non-smoker, BMI of 20, Excellent blood pressure, glucose normal, um, right carotid brewery. It was about a 70% right carotid brewery, asymptomatic. Um, she has extensor tendon xanthomas, and her Achilles tendons were bilaterally thickened. So what can we offer her if we can't offer her lipid-lowering therapies? Apheresis. Yes, apheresis. So 
Why does she qualify for apheresis? She has familial hypercholesterolemia. She's a heterozygote. She has an LDL greater than 100 with atherosclerotic vascular disease in her carotid. So this is what Teresa um, offers um, CI. She's the apheresis um, coordinator there. And so what happens when you have what happens when you do lipid apheresis? So essentially, blood is withdrawn from one arm. Um, and most people get an AV fistula. Um, CI has gotten a port, um, a high flow port. Um, blood is separated with the plasma separator. And um, so you separate it into plasma and red cells. The plasma is what contains the LDL. Um, you go through these lipoabsorber columns. The lipoabsorber columns are... Um, columns that have cellulose beads, and those cellulose beads are impregnated with dextran sulfate. Dextran sulfate is negatively charged. ApoB is positively charged, so we adsorb the, um, the ApoB. And then we switch forth um, from one column to another. Um, the uh, column repriming solution, and it goes out the waistline into a bag. So this is just a blow-up. These are the cellulose beads with dextran sulfate. This is what the lipoabsorber column looks like. Um, VLDL has ApoB because um, VLDL gets converted to LDL, but that's a triglyceride-rich lipoprotein. This is not what apheresis is used for. It clogs up the machine, but it's used for LDL, and it also lowers LP little a. So this is what the repriming solution and lipid looks like. So... Um, Patients are very impressed with these bags. Um, mostly this is repriming solution, but you can see right in the middle that big glob of lipid. That's what's come out. And she has an excellent response. Um, this is in December. Um, her LDL pre was 258 and post 24. Lipo delay 240 and post 52. But unfortunately, she has a rapid rebound. Um, LDL apheresis is approved every two weeks for somebody with heterozygous FH. CI still has a full-time job. Homozygote FH patients come once a week, um, but she can't come once a week. It's approved for every two weeks. So um, she, by the time mid, you know, the first week goes by, she's already pretty much back up um, to her pre-LDL apheresis number. And unfortunately, um, in August of this year, CI developed unstable angina. She was found to have multivessel disease here um, and had a bypass. So what do we do now? She's on LDLA phoresis. So thanks to the cardiac team, Allison, Jeanette, um, Deb, uh, they've been working with me on um, on getting compassionate use, Evancumab. Um, so Evancumab uh, is an inhibitor of angiopoietin-3, um, and these are being evaluated. Evancumab um, is a, a, a fully human monoclonal antibody, and it's being evaluated in patients with HEFH, heterozygous FH, homozygous FH, and patients with extreme hypertriglyceridemia. Um, Ang-PTL3 is a which increases triglycerides, um, it um, increases LDL, 
and it um, increases HDL. It's known to inhibit lipoprotein lipase, so you can understand why this agent would be very helpful or very um, would raise triglycerides. It inhibits lipoprotein lipase. Lipoprotein lipase is what breaks down VLDL, a triglyceride-rich lipoprotein. But there have been loss of function variants. And so we're more and more looking at these loss of function variants to ask the question, what if you inhibited this, would it benefit patients? And in fact, so loss of function um, variants of the ANG-PTL3 genes have been associated with reduced triglycerides, reduced LDL, and um, it reduced HDL, which is not necessarily good, but ultimately these people who have these loss of function variants are at reduced risk for cardiovascular disease. So it is something to target. So as I said, it's a fully human uh, monoclonal antibody. It was first studied in an open-label four-week study in nine patients with HOFH. It's not totally clear how it lowers LDL, but nonetheless, interim data on the first four patients, LDL fell 55%, and the range was 25 to 90%. Um, and based on this, the FDA gave Regeneron breakthrough status, um, and this is a process by which we expedite the development of a drug that's demonstrated substantial improvement um, over clinically available therapies. So um, hopefully um, with, by Christmas, we will be able to offer um, CI a um, once-a-month infusion of Evenuncumab, um, which Regeneron is going to supply to us. There are other clinical, uh, other um, lipid-lowering medica medications that are currently in clinical trials. These include bempedoic acid. So full disclosure, I have no disclosures for 12 months, but in the past I did work on bempedoic acid. Um, it inhibits um, hepatic adenosine triphosphate citrate lyase, or ACL. This is an enzyme upstream um, from HMG-CoA reductase. And um, bempedoic acid is a prodrug. It is only converted into its active form in the liver and to a lesser degree in the skeletal muscle, but not in the, excuse me, in the, um, the liver and the kidney and not at all in the skeletal muscle. So there's some thought um, that this may um, have a reduced risk of muscular discomfort. We won't know until all the clinical trials come out. Um, but bempedoic acid is being combined with azetamibe for a non-statin drug that could lower LDL by 35, 40%. Inclisiran is in uh, phase three clinical trials. This is a very different way of uh, inhibiting PCSK9. Um, it is a small interfering RNA designed to target messenger RNA of PCSK9, and it reduces the production of PCSK9 and upregulates LDL receptors. We've already talked about Evenuncumab. Um, Magigril 3196, this is a thyroid hormone receptor beta-selective agonist. Um, the previous thyroid hormone agonists, which were used in lipid-lowering trials, caused skeletal muscle um, abnormalities uh, or uh, skeletal abnormalities. These were um, not uh, beta-selective. So the hope is that the beta-selectives will lower LDL. They also lower triglycerides. Interestingly, Matagrill, the company that makes this, has sort of pivoted. Um, they have, they're still studying lipids, but they're moving really to NASH. Um, and so a, there's a lot, of, a lot of drugs that can be used potentially in both lipids and NASH.
Um, so triglyceride lowering drugs, valanosaurin. This is a whole different class of drugs. It's an antisense oligonucleotide that also targets messenger RNA. Um, and this time for APOC3. APOC3 is an inhibitor of lipoprotein lipase. Um, even Uncumab and Magigirl, we've already talked about. And then Axia, which is a small biotech in Cambridge, is looking at um, a uh, antisense oligonucleotide against small A. It's been shown in clinical trials to lower LP little a by about 70 to 90 percent. Um, and it is being studied in people who have cardiovascular disease, who have perfect controlled LDL, but still have an elevated LP little a. And the hope is that they'll be able to show a difference in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. So the last thing I want to talk about in the next two minutes and then have time for questions is find FH. <clears throat> this is something that I've been working with George Blake on, and hopefully we will bring this um, to Dartmouth. It is already at um, the University of Pennsylvania, um, at um, OSHU. Um, it's also at a large um, organization in Ohio and at Geisinger. It is a national initiative that utilizes machine learning and natural language processing and data mining techniques um, to identify individuals whose profiles are consistent with FH. So it flags these patients to be evaluated by their clinicians to see, do they have FH or not? Um, so it searches healthcare encounters, um, searches lab results, claims data, and EMRs. And um, you can look at somebody who might be on, say, triple drug therapy and back titrate to figure out what was their baseline LDL. What's the likelihood that they have FH? So what it does is allow finding FH um, and making it much easier. So if we say that FH occurs in one in 220 to one in 250 individuals worldwide, in the general population, you'd have to screen eight, um, you'd get eight patients out of, after screening 1,760. Because the cath lab is enriched in patients with FH, um, you have to screen 800 to get eight. Um, people who have LDL greater than 190, um, because some people are on the ketogenic diet, you can, in fact, eat your way um, to an LDL greater than 190, about 8 out of 400. But if you use the fine find FH algorithm, um, you can screen 10 people and find eight. Um, so we're very hopeful that we can find more patients because when we um, look at the data, 90% of people who have FH in the United States today do not know they have FH. So we've talked about uh, the genetic causes, the frequency, the transmission, cardiovascular risk, our current frequency, it particularly cases, um, the benefits of early treatment, lipid-lowering therapies, and we've explored that through two cases, Jane and CI, and um, we've talked about medications on the horizon and the FIND FH initiative, which I hope we'll bring to Dartmouth. I think we have about 14 minutes for questions. Thanks, for that, was, that was a really elegant discussion. Um, I want to switch from really high LDL to really low LDL. And now that we're utilizing statins much more readily and PCS can inhibitors, when do we say low is really low and we have to stop or even back off a little bit on our therapy? 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So um, the Glagoff trial looked at patients who were on <clears throat> uh, statins, um, plus minus ezetimibe, and evolocumab, and asked the question, can you get regression? And you, you can get regression. Um, so it, it looks like regression occurs at around 40, 30 milligrams per deciliter. Um, I think uh, Dr. Jane told me that he put on my desk the other day, I didn't see it yet, somebody with a minus six. Now it's impossible to have a minus six LDL. Um, but we are getting in those ranges. And so if you're down at an LDL of 10, it's probably overkill. And there, it, it, people have a little bit of concern. Now one area where you kind of get into a tight spot is what do you do? You certainly don't want to back off on the PCSK9 inhibitor because you've spent so much time getting it approved. Um, it's getting a little easier, that's for sure, um, thanks to our, our colleagues at um, Amgen and at Santa Fe Regeneron. It is getting a little easier. It's become much less expensive. Um, but sometimes if you back off on the statin, the um, insurance companies will tell you you're no longer getting um, the PCSK9 inhibitor. So it's a delicate dance. Um, but I think clinically, um, you know, get to 30 and then we don't need to be lower than that. We, and the last step, I would, last thing I would say about that is you're born with an LDL of about 30. And it's over the first two years of your life, you increase um, pretty rapidly. Um, but you're making cells at a faster rate than any other time when you're first born. So I think 30 is certainly acceptable. Great presentation. Um, should we be doing um, more than just the lipid panel? And is there a measurement for apolipoprotein B and PCSK9? So, um, it, two things. You know, we just had, and the National Lipid Association just had their um, guidance on LP little a, and there was some dissent among the expert members of the panel. Some people felt that everybody should get one LP little a in their lifetime. And, and I actually happen to be in that camp. And I think that that's reasonable because it's such a strong independent predictor of cardiovascular risk. And you can't pick out who has high LP little a. Some people, certainly anyone with FH should be screened because 30 to 50%, that's a pretty high number. Um, but in the general population, um, we know that African-Americans have slightly higher LP little a's than Caucasians. Um, but anything greater than um, 50 milligrams per deciliter has been designated as an elevated level. LP little a is tricky. It has not been uh, well standardized. You can get LP little a, so you always have to look at the units of measure measured as mass, um, and over 30 milligrams per deciliter is elevated. Over 50, we start getting more concerned. Uh, it's also measured as particle number, and, and that is probably the preferable way. We don't measure it that way at Dartmouth. We measure milligrams per deciliter, but it can be measured as nanomoles per liter, and less than 76 nanomoles per liter is considered normal. Um, greater than 100 would be considered um, worrisome. So I think LP little a, APO be. If you have somebody that has early cardiovascular disease and has a, what looks like a pretty normal LDL, they may have small, dense LDL and have more ApoB um, than they so. Um, my mentor, Dr. Peter Kudovich, his whole world revolved around ApoB. Um, so I left fellowship thinking ApoB was like 
the hottest thing ever. It, it, it probably is. Um, but uh, if you have somebody who um, has early cardiovascular disease and you can't explain it, get an ApoB. Um, the other way to kind of get um, atherogenic lipoproteins is the non-HDL. So total cholesterol minus the HDL gives you all the ApoB-containing lipoproteins. Because in fact, when we measure LDL, we're actually measuring LP little a in that um, in, in LDL. Um, so, and uh, ApoA, I don't routinely measure, but ApoB I can get, um, and, and LP little a. I don't think we're uh, ready to measure ApoC3 yet. I want to make oh. sure we don't miss Oh, sure, sorry. The yes, yes. Since the, the risk of LDL uh, increase over time, what is the reason that you don't recommend using it earlier in kids? Is it a practical matter? They won't take it or the parents won't allow it? Or is there, is, has risk been demonstrated at age five, six, seven, eight? Yes, so that's a very good question. So Wegman and colleagues um, from Holland have done carotid um, uh, intimal medial thickness. In So if you're in a family with FH, you will have children that have um, FH, and kids, they're unaffected siblings. And it looks like carotid intimal medial thickness diverges at around the age of nine or 10. Um, so uh, the thinking is measure it in nine to 11. But there's also some practical issues. Um, and I didn't know until I had my three kids. Kids can't swallow pills until they are a little bit older. And um, there's also a practical issue about getting them started young. Um, also didn't know this until I had three kids. Um, that uh, your kids will pretty much get into a habit if you start them at 9 or 10 or 11, taking their pill. It just becomes part of their routine. If you wait till they're 13 or 14, and everybody here has probably had 13 or 14-year-olds, they won't take their medicines. So getting them um, before puberty is um, the time when we want to initiate um, the medication so that they'll stick with it. Is there any, any other side effect risk in the younger child? It, thus far, so they're, they're, the sad thing is, is we have been using statins in kids since 1987, um, but the longest trials are two years. Um, there's a lot of data. Um, it doesn't appear that there's any risk, and we know that there's huge risk associated with elevated LDL. Um, so um, there's not a lot of longitudinal data on, on children, um, but the consensus is begin and, and treat for a lifetime so that you can change their, their trajectory. I think in the pediatric world, uh, we try to avoid stigma as much as possible. I stand, I, everything you, you said is fascinating, but in the general population, there's still a connection between high cholesterol and cardiovascular disease and lifestyle. So I think there's some stigma attached to it. So one of the questions I would have in the pediatric world is, has anyone looked at that? Absolutely. Of diagnosing an 11-year-old with what other people around them are going to assume is a lifestyle disease. Yeah. So there has been um, a lot of work on that. Um, and the work has shown that kids, so it's mainly questionnaires and um, interviews of children who have been diagnosed with FH um, and are taking a lipid-lowering agent. And they asked, you know, do you feel different than your peers? Um, you know, do you understand FH? And these kids are, you know, uh, perfectly willing um, to take their lipid-lowering therapies. They almost all have family members that have had cardiac disease. Um, but it's our job to educate the kids, tell them this is a genetic disease, just like any other genetic disease. It's not your fault you have it. Um, and, you know, most of these little FH kids are skinny little kids. You saw um, Jane's, you know, three of her four grandchildren um, or 
three of her six grandchildren, you know, they're all very tiny. They understand that their mother has FH, that their grandmother had a heart attack, that their great grandmother died young. So I, I, I think that you can educate and the data suggests that there's no stigma attached, that, that the child doesn't feel stigma. Right next. Oh, thanks for a wonderful talk. Um, learned a lot from it. I appreciate it. Thank thanks. You. A question for you. When you were getting into some of the uh, newer therapies uh, for patients who can tolerate, say, three or four different statins and also can't tolerate Zedia, they sound very, very expensive. I know the drugs are. I imagine the, the uh, lipophoresis is. How do you address that if you have a patient who you think needs to move on to one of those newer therapies, CSK9 or the, or the phoresis? Are, do those companies, if they work through you, do you have some sort of relationship with a company that they will somehow fund that in a patient who has no insurance? Yeah, it's <clears throat> a very good question. I mean, these newer medications are extremely expensive. PCSK9 inhibitors um, have, in fact, become less expensive. They came on the market in 2015 um, north of um, $14,000. Um, they're now down at around north of $5,000 for a year. It's a lot of money. Um, it's a lot of money every year. And um, there are programs that we participate in um, through the uh, financial assistance um, office. So the people that are um, most in need of the PCSK9 inhibitors are people, not necessarily that have FH, but people who have cardiovascular disease and, and, and may have FH or cardiovascular disease and haven't gotten to goal. And um, it, it, and if they have Medicare, they're not eligible for these copay cards um, that many patients get that have insurance. Um, there is the PASS program, and there's a, another program that Amgen has um, that provides patients with financial um, hardship um, these medications for free. And the, the financial um, services group here at Dartmouth does a very good job in getting patients. Um, you know, the uh, patients who have Medicare can pay as much as three or $400 a month um, for these drugs. So it's, it, it, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, they come at a big price. And we do our best to get people to tolerate statins. But because Bruce Andrews and I are in the lipid clinic, we naturally receive um, patients referred to us that are, you know, just absolutely intolerant of statins. Most people can tolerate statins. Hey, thanks for a great talk. Thanks. I have a comment for you to react to and a question. The comment is uh, there's some controversy about universal screening without risk factors in the history of the U.S. Task force suggests waiting until 35 men and 45 women. And the question is the details about genetic screening, like if you see somebody with an LDL over 190, does our lab have an FH genetic package? Yes. So <clears throat> I agree. You're, you're right. Um, uh, I have debated the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force um, recommendations uh, with lots of people. Um, but if you really read those guidelines or those recommendations, um, they say it might really be a good idea um, for universal screening, but we're just not quite sure. And in part, they, um, you know, they talk about the non-longitudinal, um, you know, nothing more than two years with kids, which is problematic. Um, that's on us to do that research. Um, but if you look at families with FH, 
it is the disease. Um, you can only have elevated LDL and get into very early trouble um, with cardiovascular disease. And if you're universally screening a nine to 11 year old, the parent might not have had a cardiac event yet. And it is really quite remarkable how many people don't know um, their family history, been estranged from maybe the parent that had FH. So I, I do think universal screening is, is is really a good thing. Um, do we have a package? Yes, we do. So here at um, Dartmouth, the way you can get genetic screening, and the genetic screening includes the four major genes that I talked about, LDL receptor, ApoB, PCSK9, and the LDL receptor adapter protein. Um, you can get that through Invitae. So in order to order this, um, you have to um, send an email um, to our um, Department of um, prior authorization. It's D.H. Conifer. So I um, send an email there. Um, they then talk to the person's um, insurance company to find out, is this covered? Um, almost always it is covered. Um, and then, in, in fact, today I'm going to be calling somebody um, who probably has a hypo-beta lipoproteinemia. He has L um, he had an LDL of 11. Um, and he probably has hypo-beta lipoproteinemia or PCSK9. So we can um, have the patient go to the lab, any Hitchcock lab. You order it as a miscellaneous test. You put in the CPT code, and then... Um, Voila, you get the test back and it comes back in about three weeks. I actually would like to follow up oh, on sure. Charlie's first question, if that's okay. Um, so in the absence of longitudinal screening trial data, which is a challenge, um, are there modeling studies that can help us think about the number needed to screen in a, a general population level to prevent well, what we know is in New Hampshire, we have greater than one in 250 risk of having FH. So if every kid got screened, um, then um, we would probably find FH in one in maybe more than 250 because we have a found population. And then um, what, what we know um, from uh, clinical trials by Wald and colleagues from um, England who did this universal screening of children um, for every one child, you can find eight people with um, FH. So, uh, you know, I know I'm not quite answering your question, um, but, um, and then you need to treat them um, because unfortunately people come on and off their drugs. Um, so a, um, a educated um, patient population that knows that FH is a very high risk situation, um, knows to take their meds, um, knows to take them all their lives. Um, and then I suppose we would come up with the number needed to treat, but I, I don't know the answer to your question. So I don't want to take the last question, so I'm going to okay. have one more. Okay. My question is about LP infertility. We know that it's atherogenic and thrombogenic, but what do we do with the insulation that we don't have effective treatment for that? Yeah, that's right. Aspirin lowers LP little a by about 11%. Um, so what we do is we treat their other risk factors very, very aggressively in the absence of a medication to lower LP little a and in the absence of data that shows lowering LP little a reduces risk. But if you find somebody with an elevated LP little a, that puts that person in a very high risk category. And that is a, a patient that would probably benefit the, the current guidelines um, or um, 
uh, expert opinion um, from the National Lipid Association is at least have this patient have an LDL goal less than 100. So we, we do treat the LDL. Um, niacin will lower LP little a. There's a lot of controversy about niacin. Niacin has not been shown. Um, once added to um, a statin in the AIM high trial, even in people with high LP little a, it didn't add um, additional benefits. So the current um, LP little a guidance uh, suggests not necessarily using niacin. The other thing that can lower LP little a is estrogen. And the women in the Women's Health Initiative who benefited from estrogen happen to have high LP little a, but we don't recommend estrogen for LP little a either. So aspirin and aggressively treating all of the risk factors. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you.